Episode 24, The Height of the Roman Empire. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 24, The Height of the Roman Empire. From the time that Caesar Augustus took control and turned Rome into an empire, until about 200 years later, Rome enjoyed a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. This became known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. There was, of course, fighting on the borders, always is, in Gaul, Germania, Britain, and in the east in Armenia and Parthia, But within the empire itself, things were very stable and prosperous and relatively safe. Rome kept the peace in all the areas that it had conquered. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned the idea of the fullness of time, a line from the Apostle Paul, about the sense that the time was right for the Messiah to come. The Pax Romana is part of that. From the Christian perspective, it was the fullness of time. From the Roman perspective, which we're looking at today, In this episode, it was the Pax Romana. It basically lasted until the end of Marcus Aurelius' reign in AD 180. And it ended because Marcus Aurelius' successor, Commodus, was not a good ruler and was probably insane. Joaquin Phoenix, by the way, plays this very well in the movie Gladiator. But again, he's kind of insane in every movie he's in, so maybe it's not such a stretch for him. But Commodus ended the good times. We're getting ahead of ourselves again. When Jesus died in about A.D. 30 or so, the emperor was Tiberius. He had been appointed by Augustus as his successor. It was pretty common throughout Rome for people to adopt their nephews or their in-laws to be their heirs, and this practice continued in the succession of emperors, at least for a while. Now, Tiberius was apparently a pretty gloomy person, and he didn't really want to be the emperor, and he never got along well with the Senate. But he was a pretty good administrator, and he took in more money than he spent, even while accomplishing some really good building projects all around the empire. Tiberius also had a really, really good general named Germanicus, and this was evidently who Tiberius wanted to succeed him. However, Germanicus died. In fact, just before he died, he accused the governor of Syria of poisoning him. And so eventually, the succession from Tiberius fell to one of Germanicus's sons, a guy named Caligula, who took the throne in A.D. 37. Now, you may have heard of Caligula before. Just like there's this supposed list of five good emperors, there's kind of a list of five bad emperors, and Caligula is on the bad emperor list. In fact, he might have been the very worst emperor of all. He's known for being insane, cruel, and wildly extravagant. He also wasn't at all concerned with ruling and running an empire. He was more concerned with his own personal vices. Oddly enough, though, there are some reports that say that the first six months of his rule were supposedly very peaceful and moderate. So there are some theories that he actually started off okay, but then literally went insane. Anyway, he was such a bad ruler that four years into his reign, his own bodyguard, the Praetorian Guard, assassinated him, and they put his uncle Claudius on the throne. Now, this becomes a pretty standard process later in the empire, that the empire is assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, and then they name the new emperor. If the emperor didn't do a good job, 
of making clear who their successor was, then there was either chaos or the Praetorian Guard just stepped in and picked whoever they wanted. So in AD 41, the Praetorian Guard puts in Claudius, who is Caligula's uncle, and puts him on the throne. Now Claudius had been born in Gaul in 10 BC. So he was the first emperor who was not actually born in Italy. He was Roman, but he was just born outside of Italy. Presumably, he forged his birth certificate to show that he was actually born in Hawaii, thus making him eligible. No, wait, that was somebody else. Anyway, Caligula was a bit of an odd choice for emperor because he was somewhat deaf, and he walked with a limp. He had some sort of droopy part of his face, and he had some kind of epilepsy or other disorder that would make him have small seizures and sometimes just fall asleep in the middle of dinner or a meeting. However, he was also something of a scholar, and he apparently wrote several histories, including a voluminous history of Carthage. Unfortunately, none of his actual writings have survived, just the list of what he did write. When the Praetorian Guard installed him as emperor, it may have been because they thought he would be easy to control. But it turned out he actually did a pretty good job as, as emperor. He ran the empire well. He made sound financial decisions, unlike Caligula. And he presided over the conquering of much of Britain. He's remembered as an odd but efficient emperor. He died in A.D. 54, and he was succeeded by his adopted son-in-law, Nero. Now, it's possible that Claudius's wife, Agrippina, who was Nero's mother, poisoned Claudius so that her son Nero could take the throne. Now, this is a bad call on Agrippina's part. Nero took the throne in AD 54, and he quickly set about getting himself onto the list of five bad emperors. Nero put on lavish games and plays, and in some cases he acted in the plays himself, and he also participated in the gladiatorial combats. He considered himself a great actor. Now this made him popular with the masses, but the legions, the patriarchs, the senate, and the wealthy all hated him. All of the comments from historians about him are negative. He apparently killed his mother, his wife, his half-brother, and other members of his family, and he openly married several people at the same time, both men and women. He was also apparently very cruel. Some historians record that he arrested a lot of Christians. It was the first major imperial persecution of Christians. And on a couple of occasions, he had them tied up to poles in his garden. So the Christians were like tied to a pole up in the air, way up off the ground. And then Nero had them doused in oil and used them as torches to light the garden at night. Pretty gruesome. He also oversaw a general persecution of Christians across the empire. Both Peter and Paul were imprisoned and then executed during Nero's reign. Nero is also accused of setting a huge fire in Rome in AD 64, which burned much of Rome. Now, there's conflicting accounts of whether he set it or not, or just didn't respond to have it put out. Um, and there's also conflicting reports about how he reacted to the fire. There's a famous story of him standing on his balcony playing the fiddle, watching the city burn. There's another historian that reports that he sang a song about the destruction of Troy as he watched it burn. Whether he was responsible for the fire or not, after it was over, he blamed the Christians and had many of them rounded up and executed. It may have been in this wave of arrests that Peter and Paul were jailed. In AD 68, several of the Roman provinces 
rebelled against the taxation that Nero had imposed on them to help rebuild after the fire of 64. Several of the governors out in the provinces had themselves declared emperor by their troops, and the Praetorian Guard, who were supposed to protect the existing emperor, came out instead in support of one of the governors. So Nero fled Rome, and he had his servant kill him by stabbing him with a sword. His last words were, apparently, What an actor dies with me, still thinking of himself as a great actor. He had not set up any plan of succession, and so there was a year of chaos that's now known as the Year of the Four Emperors, where four different people briefly reigned as emperor, sometimes at the same time. Now, the last of the four was a guy named Vespasian, who we mentioned last episode because he was the Roman general that had been sent to Judea to put down the Jewish revolt. Vespasian was able to once he became the emperor, to secure control of Rome, and he reigned relatively stably for 10 years, from A.D. 69 to A.D. 79. During his reign, Jerusalem was captured and the temple was destroyed, and eventually the nation of Judea ceased to exist. It became part of the Roman province of Syria. Vespasian died in 79, and he was succeeded by his son Titus. Now, Titus was a pretty good emperor, but he only reigned for two years, and he died in A.D. 81 of some kind of fever. While Titus was the emperor, the disastrous explosion of Mount Vesuvius happened, burying the city of Pompeii in 15 feet of ash. But Titus is remembered for a very, very generous response to the people that were still alive and helping them uh, recover from the disaster. After Titus died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Domitian. Now, Domitian reigned from 81 to 96, a pretty good long run there considering the recent history of turnover. He was pretty well liked by the people and the army, but he completely ignored the Senate and the Senate thought him a tyrant. But he did run the empire pretty well, expanding it in several places. During his reign, the Romans tried to move farther up the Isle of Britain and began fighting with the Scots. It didn't really go well for them as the Scots were not in any way interested in submitting to Roman rule. Rome had actually conquered many of the tribes of England by pitting the tribes one against each other and then rewarding the ones who were their own allies. But the Scots instead mostly stuck together against Rome, and at one point the Romans lost an entire legion. It just vanished in Scotland somewhere, never to return. Domitian managed to keep the peace in the empire, though, and his reign set the stage for the best stretch of Roman prosperity since Augustus. However, because he had built up a cadre of enemies, he also was assassinated in A.D. 96 by some of the Praetorian Guard, who then installed his successor, as they do. The next five emperors after Domitian are known as the Five Good Emperors. Now, this list was originally created by Machiavelli, and then it was also used by Edward Gibbon, whose massive anthology, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, is considered one of the crucial books in English of Roman history, and it was a pretty amazing accomplishment in and of itself. The five good emperors in both of these lists all did a good job of surviving, first of all, maintaining order, defeating barbarians, except for those pesky Scots, and all of them managed to have succession plans that made for smooth transitions of power to the next emperor. The five good emperors collectively rule from A.D. 96 through A.D. 180. And if you count Domitian's reign, that's a hundred years of peace and prosperity throughout most of the empire. 
And if you count from the beginning of Augustus's reign, that's about 200 years, the 200 years of the Pax Romana. So, who were these five good emperors? The first one was named Nerva, and things were pretty peaceful during his reign, but his reign was brief. He was already pretty old, 66, which is kind of old for a brand new emperor. Plus, he didn't have the support of the legions who had liked his predecessor, Domitian. So the legions pressured him early on to name an heir that was one of their generals, and it's probably a good thing that he did this. He appointed the popular Spanish general Trajan as his successor. Nerva only reigned for two years. He died in 98 of natural causes, um, but he was seen as a wise and moderate emperor, and he had a succession plan in place to put a popular, well-regarded person in as the new emperor, Trajan. So the second of the five, Trajan, is one of the candidates for the best emperor of all time. If I had to pick the five candidates that I thought were the best emperors of all time throughout the whole Roman Empire, it would be Augustus, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Constantine, and Hadrian. Three of these guys are in this group of five good emperors, this run that's five good emperors in a row. And you can see this was kind of the height of the Roman Empire because some of these guys were the best emperors Rome ever had. Trajan was considered wise and practical, and he presided over substantial building projects throughout the empire. During Trajan's reign, the Roman Empire aggressively expanded its territory to the north, to the east, and to the northeast, and it reached its largest territorial extent about the time of Trajan's death. So this is it, guys. This is the height of the Roman Empire. From here, it's only getting smaller. It's only going downhill. The next few emperors managed to keep things peaceful, but you could kind of say that the death of Trajan in AD 117 was the very highest height of the Roman Empire. But that kind of throws some shade on Trajan's successor, Hadrian, who was also an excellent emperor. Hadrian did lose a bit of Roman territory, but that, honestly, was actually going on all the time out on the borders. You lose some territory in Scotland, you gain some over in Armenia, you lose some down in Mauritania. It's hard to keep track of what's happening at the borders, and it's hard to keep track of what's in the empire at any given moment and what's out. Hadrian also did manage to accomplish some impressive military campaigns like Trajan and some massive building projects. He rebuilt the Pantheon in Rome, a temple to all the Roman gods, which had burned down. And it was apparently rebuilt pretty well because it's still there. That's worth Googling to see what it looks like. It's a pretty impressive building. Hadrian also rebuilt several temples in Athens, and he built the famous Hadrian's Wall that runs across northern England from coast to coast. He built that wall to keep the Scots from raiding Roman settlements in the north of England. Hadrian ruled from A.D. 117 to 138, and when he died, he appointed his adopted son Antoninus Pius as his successor. Antoninus also presided over a peaceful time in the empire, reigning from A.D. 138 to 161. He appointed his two adopted sons to be his successors, and when he died of natural causes, they jointly took over ruling the empire. These two sons were named Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius. Now, Lucius Verus doesn't last very long, but he apparently was a pretty good emperor too. However, he dies in AD 169, that's only eight years into the reign, um, leaving Marcus Aurelius as the sole emperor. It's possible that Verus died of the plague, 
And one of the key events of Aurelius's reign was an empire-wide outbreak of some kind of plague that killed between 5 and 10 million people. Now, that's a huge number back in those days. The Roman physician Galen wrote about this plague. He was alive during this time. And he said that the symptoms included fever, diarrhea, the inflammation of the pharynx, along with dry or pustular eruptions of the skin after nine days, all of which sounds horrible. And it could have been a description of either a type of the plague or a type of smallpox. So there's some historical debate about whether it's actual plague or it's smallpox. Anyway, it kills a lot of the Roman Empire, unfortunately, and other people in other uh, surrounding areas as well. Whatever it was, it was known as the Antonine Plague, and it had a big effect on all of Rome. During Aurelius's time as the emperor, in addition to the plague, the Romans had substantial wars with the Parthians in the east, the kingdom of Armenia in the northeast, and several large Germanic tribes in the north. The Romans eventually won all those wars, but the combination of the plague and constant warfare left the Roman legions weakened, and all of those battles had set up some harsh enmities between Rome and the barbarians. These will all come back later, the barbarians will come back later looking for vengeance. Apart from these border issues, though, Rome was mostly peaceful under Marcus Aurelius's reign. Another interesting thing about Aurelius was that he was a noted Stoic, that is, he was a follower of the philosophy of Stoicism. Aurelius kept a journal that was preserved after his death of his thoughts on Stoic philosophy. That journal is called The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, and it's an important source of information about Roman Stoicism. It's still available today, and I highly encourage you to read some of it. It's kind of amazing that we have the personal thoughts of a Roman emperor. Plus, it's also a pretty interesting set of thoughts. Marcus Aurelius did a really good job of running the empire, even though his reign had a lot more challenges than some of his predecessors. He was very respected by almost everyone and well-remembered by later historians. He might even have been in contention for the greatest of all Roman emperors, except for one small problem. Commodus. Oh, stupid Commodus. Instead of adopting a proven, competent general or statesman to succeed him, as the previous emperors had done, Marcus Aurelius chose his son Commodus to succeed him. In addition to having the dumbest, most unfortunate name of all the emperors, Commodus was also very vain and weak, and he was an immoral person, and he probably has earned himself a spot on the list of the five worst emperors. Now, Marcus Aurelius reigned for 19 years until A.D. 180, when he died at the age of 58, apparently of natural causes. Commodus, who had been at least nominally the co-Caesar for a few years, took over as emperor. The transition was smooth, which was good. But Commodus was such a bad ruler that after 12 years of conspiracy and intrigue and bumbling, he was assassinated, apparently by a trained wrestler who had been hired to kill him, who killed him in a Roman bathhouse. Do you remember the year of the four emperors that I mentioned earlier? Well, that happened after Caligula had been assassinated. After Commodus is assassinated, we get the year of the five emperors as five different people vie for the throne. You can see things are starting to fall apart a little bit. In fact, things get so disorganized that for the next hundred years, there's a crisis in Rome, and this is known as the crisis of the third century. That's the 200s, remember. During this crisis, there were at least 26 different people claiming the throne or part of the empire. Rome very nearly fell apart as an empire. It almost dissolved into a bunch of competing mini-Roman empires with different people claiming different parts for themselves and different 
uh, imperial titles for themselves. But this finally ends with the ascension of the emperor Diocletian in AD 284, and he begins to bring another period of stability to Rome. But we're sort of past the prime now. Rome is still very powerful, yes, and it definitely will still have some glorious moments, but the best is gone. The Pax Romana is over. It basically ended with the death of Marcus Aurelius in AD 180, though there were still some peaceful stretches after that. But the golden era of the Roman Empire is over. What ended it? It's a good question, right? A short answer would be corruption and ambition as people fought for control of the empire or pieces of it. Another part of the answer, though, would be that it took a very specific type of person to rule an entire empire well, and for a while, the empire managed to produce a string of people who could do it. A lot of them had shown their talents in the military, which is actually a pretty good place to test if someone has what it takes to be a leader. Fakers don't make it very far in the legions. You actually had to be good at your job, good at leading other men. But even that didn't always prove to be enough. Being good at being a general did not always mean that you were good at politics, and leading soldiers was different from leading the Senate. Not everyone had all the talents. Another problem was the loss of cohesion and the problem of diversity in the empire as it expanded. As the empire grew and expanded and took in new territory, not everyone that they conquered and took in shared the core Roman values, and even some of those who were Roman were willing to ignore those values for personal gain. The Romans called their structure of values mos maiorum, which basically means the way of the elders. And it was sort of the social and societal norms which held Rome together and made it strong. As those norms were changed and ignored over time, and as more people from outlying areas who didn't really hold those values, they became part of the empire, the culture that held Rome together began to unravel. Rome really began to lose the cultural glue of Mos Maiorum in the last 100 years of the Republic, as different people fought over the leadership of the Republic for their own personal gain. And from then on, control had to be from the top down. Now, this top-down control worked in Rome while there was a good emperor who would lead with and uphold strong Roman values. But when there was a bad emperor, things always started to fall apart. Without good leadership, good leadership in the right place, and a good man upholding the good values that Rome had been built on, the system was very vulnerable to corruption. Can you see where I'm going with this? It's very similar to what's happening in America and in other democracies around the world. A system that was built on great, incredible values was corrupted because ambitious men took advantage of the system for their own gain, not really caring that they were damaging a very unique and precious gift. That happened in Rome, it's happening in the world today, not just here in America. In all these cases, there was a move away from personal liberties and the idea of inherent human rights in the name of order, control, and personal ambition. Without a good person or good people at the top who care about and uphold the values that the system is built on, instead of just following their own selfish wants and desires, even a good system is vulnerable to corruption. This is what John Adams meant when he said that the U.S. Constitution is only going to be good for a moral and religious people. Without those kind of people in power, the system is easily abused and corrupted as we see today. 
Another thing I want to mention here about imperial power is that despite the Roman Empire beginning to decline and eventually ending, the imperial model of power and governmental structure is the model that lasts for about the next 1,500 years or so. This is the model of government for all the governments of the West until around 1776, when the people again come together and begin to assert their inherent rights. Now, there's an important distinction here about human rights between these two models. In the imperial model, whether it's an emperor or a king, human rights are handed down from the top rather than being inherent rights that everyone has, as it was with the Greek democracies or the Roman Republic. After the Republic dies, and partly because of the massive success of the subsequent Roman Empire, imperial rule is the model for the next millennium and a half. In fact, many subsequent kingdoms and empires, including the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, which was a kind of a kingdom all to itself for a while, the Byzantine Empire, the French Empire, Napoleon, who named himself Emperor of Europe, right? Remember that? The Russian Empire, the British Empire, all of these empires were very consciously modeling themselves after the Roman Empire. And this is kind of the model for how government works, again, until 1776, when a group of British citizens in America staged a revolt. And then they began to create a new government, not based on the Roman Empire, but based on the Roman Republic. It wasn't really until then that the people again began to assert their inherent rights and tried, they tried to build a governmental model that wasn't top-down imperial, but a government whereby the people themselves protect their own rights, sometimes using the government to protect rights, sometimes protecting them themselves. But the goal of it is to protect the individual rights that are inherent in all people. People have inherent rights, and the American Founding Fathers were consciously trying to create a limited governmental structure that was designed to not take away their own inherent rights. Thus, the Bill of Rights is part of the Constitution. The rights are not granted by the government. These are inherent rights that everyone has, all people. And the Bill of Rights limits the government to try to keep it from taking away people's rights because that's what governments do. Throughout history, there has been this tension between people asserting their inherent rights, as in the, the Greek democracies and the Roman Republic and the founding fathers of the United States. And, and then the tension is governments trying to take those rights away and tell the people what they do. Top-down control versus bottom-up control. And really, it's not the government per se that's taking away people's rights. It's the people at the top in the government who are trying to consolidate power, use the system for themselves, gain more control, more resources, at the expense of the inherent rights of all the other people. We're beginning to get to a point in the world, again, not just in America, but all around the world, where the people are going to need to stand up for themselves and remind their own governments of their own inherent rights and to take action, again, to limit the government and the oligarchies behind the government, to limit the government to prevent our inherent rights and liberties from being taken away by lies, propaganda, or force. That seems to be where the world is heading. Next episode, we're going to take a look at Constantine and how he legitimized the church. We're going to look at the subsequent church councils of the 300s and the interesting questions they were trying to answer. And we're going to also look at how legitimizing the church 
was probably the worst thing that could have happened to it.